Hello, and welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths. I'm guest hosting this week for David Ridges, and I am the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration. So, welcome, and uh, let's open our scriptures up to section 51 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, before we dive into these sections, just a quick recap really fast on what's happening when these revelations are received. Joseph Smith has arrived in Kirtland, Ohio, but he's only been there for a couple months. One of the very first revelations he gets when he comes to Kirtland is the law, that's section 42 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which contains, among other things, the law of consecration. Joseph Smith also receives another revelation, that's section 44, where he's commanded to hold a conference and um, things pertaining to the law of consecration and the events of that conference are some of the things we're going to discuss today. That's contained in section 51 up to 57, which is our Come Follow Me block for the week. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that there are missionaries of the church in Missouri at this point in time. That's where Oliver Cowdery and the three other missionaries that convert everybody in Kirtland continue on to. And there's still the question of the location of the city of Zion that all the members of the church are wondering about. They've read these wonderful passages in the Book of Mormon, in Ether 13 and 3 Nephi, that talk about the establishment of a new Jerusalem on this land, and that's first and foremost in their minds. So if we go to section 51 of the Doctrine and Covenants, here's the context. The Lord had commanded everybody in the church in New York and Pennsylvania to gather to the Ohio, to come to Kirtland. Joseph Smith and his family are able to arrive relatively early after that commandment is given, but the rest of the church is taking time to settle their affairs and sell their homes and farms, and they're just getting ready to get there in in the summer. Uh, At the time, they knew that these saints were coming, and the question was, how are we going to provide for them? How are we going to help them? That's what section 51 deals with. In particular, the group we're talking about here is the Colesville branch, a group of saints uh, that uh, are from Colesville, which is down around near where Emma Smith grew up, where Joseph and Emma were living when most of the Book of Mormon was translated, and who are basically giving up and sacrificing everything uh, to come to Ohio. Now, one of the unique things about this revelation is that we have a an account from Orson Pratt about this revelation actually being received. So, Uh, Bishop Edward Partridge, who's in charge of implementing the law of consecration, basically taking care of everybody, approached Joseph Smith and asked him for inspired direction as to what to do. Orson Pratt, who was present, said in 1874 that this is what he saw when the revelation was given. He said, quote, Joseph was calm as the morning sun, but he noticed a change in his countenance that he had never noticed before when a revelation was given to him. Joseph's face was exceedingly white and seemed to shine. The speaker, Orson, had been present many times when he was translating the New Testament and wondered why he did not use the Urim and Thummim as in translating the Book of Mormon. While this thought passed through the speaker's mind, Joseph, as if he read his thoughts, looked up and explained that the Lord gave the Urim and Thummim when he was inexperienced with the spirit of inspiration. But now he advanced so far that he understood the operations of that spirit and did not need the assistance of that instrument. So it's just interesting to know that if you look at a lot of the early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith is using the Urim and Thummim to receive the revelation. That That is consistent up to about section 17 of the Doctrine and Covenants. By this point, Joseph Smith is saying he's experienced with the Holy Ghost. He doesn't use the Urim and Thummim to receive this revelation. Uh, so let's take a look at the text of the revelation itself. 
Lord speaks to Edward Partridge in verse 1, unto my servant Edward Partridge, and give unto him directions. It must needs be that he received directions as how to organize his people. Then he gives this command. He says, it must needs that they be organized according to my laws. If otherwise, they will be cut off. The law that he's talking about here is the law of consecration. Given in its shortest form in Doctrine and Covenants section 42, verses 30 to 42. Now, this doesn't mean that the law of consecration is given in section 42, however, is set in stone or fully revealed. In this revelation and several others, the Lord continues to reveal the law of consecration and how it works and also make tweaks and adjustments to fit the circumstances that they live in. This seems to indicate that living the law of consecration in our time might look a little bit different than living it in 1831 when this revelation is received. So, for instance, the Lord tells Edward Partridge, this is verse 3, Let my servant Edward Partridge, and them whom he has chosen, this first to his counselors, and whom I am well pleased, appoint to this people their portions, every man equal according to his family, according to his circumstances, and his wants and needs. So right there is an indication that the law of consecration isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Everybody gets an equal proportion, but that's something that's worked out between the family and the bishop. It also says that uh, goods are, are divvied up according to a person's circumstances, their wants and their needs. So it really wasn't a, if you have a family of five, you get this much stuff. You would sit down and talk to the bishop and work out back and forth as to how that was supposed to work. Now, verse six says that they're supposed to do all things according to the laws of the land and let that which belongs to this people be appointed to this people. And the money which is left unto this people, let there be an agent appointed unto this people to take the money to provide food and raiment according to the wants of this people. So, again, the Lord gives uh, the bishop and the person that's entering into consecration a lot of leeway. It wasn't just a, you get there and everybody threw everything into a common pot and then it was divided up based on numbers. It was a really clear negotiation between the bishop and the recipient over what their stewardship would be. Again, just a reminder that in section 42, once a person received a stewardship, it was their private property and their right to do with it what they thought was best. Uh, in fact, as the law of consecration continues to grow and evolve about a year later, Joseph Smith writes further instructions in a letter to Edward Partridge, where he's talking about how these meetings between the bishop and the person that's entering into consecration should go. He wrote to Edward Partridge and said, I will tell you that every man must be his own judge, how much he should receive and how much he should suffer to remain in the hands of the bishop. The matter of consecration must be done by the mutual consent of both parties. For to give the bishop power to say how much every man shall have and he be obliged to comply with the bishop's judgment is giving the bishop more power than a king has. And upon the other hand, to let every man say how much he needs, and the bishop obliged to comply with his judgment, is to throw Zion into confusion and make a slave of the bishop. The fact is, there must be a balance or equilibrium of power between the bishop and the people, and thus harmony and goodwill may be preserved among you. So it really wasn't a situation where you come into your bishop and just say, I have this many family members, and the bishop would pull out a slide rule and say, well, then you get this much stuff. You would sit down with the bishop, and he might take into account uh, your health. Uh, he might take into account the people in your family that were able to work. Um, the bishop wasn't totally dictatorial when it came to this, and neither was the person when it came to their relationship with the bishop. It was a genuine, sincere negotiation between the two. And that leads us to verse 9, one of the most important parts of the law of consecration. The Lord says, let every man deal honestly and be alike among this people and receive alike that ye may be one 
even as I have commanded you. So one of the things that the law of consecration really depended on, and you can see this still reflected in our temple recommends today, was that everyone be honest, that a person wasn't trying to game the system or take advantage of the bishop, and the bishop wasn't trying to exercise an inordinate amount of control over the person that entered into the law of consecration. Honesty has always been fundamental to the church. And you'll note here that the Lord says, basically, this is going to be done. And uh, verse 10, let that which belongeth this people not be taken and given to another church. That just refers to not another religion, but another church is in another colony, another group of Latter-day Saints that are somewhere else. You might remember in the scriptures that when it comes to the law of consecration, there's always uh, some kind of story about honesty. For instance, if you go back to the book of Acts, it mentions the disciples had all things in common, but the very next story that's told is about Ananias and Sapphira, who try to defraud the leaders of the church, and both end up having their lives taken because they're dishonest because of this. Um, the Lord also directs, in verse 13, the bishop, Edward Partridge, to appoint a storehouse to the church, and let all things, both in money and meat, which are needful for the wants of his people, be kept in the hands of his bishop. This is, again, an extension on section 42 where they're instructed to put together uh, a storehouse. But uh, this is a, a further example of the bishop gathering the other resources that everybody can use to make sure that they're okay and that it's a privilege to give into the storehouse. Now remember, uh, President Monson defined the Lord's storehouse as not a building, but as the talents, fellowship, and resources of an entire community. So what you see uh, at the bishop's storehouse near where you live is just a sample. It's the tip of the iceberg of what the Lord has to offer as we commit to live the law of consecration. And sometimes we speak of consecration in revelations like this and others, like it's a failed experiment. Uh, the law of consecration was something Joseph Smith never gave up on. I don't think you could make a case that the church ever gave up on living the law of consecration, but it does look different at different times and under different economic systems. Uh, there are people that came to Kirtland and saw them living the law of consecration and saw it as a really, really good system. Uh, a woman named Emily Austin, who eventually left the church but came to Kirtland and saw the system of consecration, was relatively impressed by it. In fact, she said this, The church had become numerous within a year or two after we arrived, and we were in a new country. It's indispensable requisite, she said, to say that all the money belonged to the wealthy members of the church treasury, and one man had the entire charge of financial affairs. Had it not been thus, there would have been great suffering among the poor and aged, who were in this way both fed and clothed. Probably this is the true origin of the report they had all things in common, and this is true. She said the poor were provided for, as well as those who put money into the treasury. They were all satisfied and happy to all appearance, and they seemed to enjoy themselves. So let's don't forget that consecration wasn't a failed experiment. Uh, it did work. It had its ups and downs, as we're going to see in just a couple sections here. But it did work among the early saints. It was just crisis after crisis, pushed them to emergency conditions. And then eventually, um, they, they have to kind of conform to the systems they live in. So the church welfare system, which is the law of consecration today, reflects the economic systems that we live in. It might change in the future. Uh, verse 16, the Lord says, I consecrate unto them this land for a little season. And this is where some problems are going to come in a little bit later. The land that was consecrated to them was in the place where this revelation was received, in uh, Thompson, Ohio. And the land was owned by a man named Lehman Copley. You might remember him from section 49 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that he was the ex-shaker that went to see his people and kind of had a traumatic experience there. So that's going to come into place 
uh, a little bit later. Um, but the principles that are contained in section 52 are kind of the next great instruction on the law of consecration. Lorenzo Snow, uh, who also practiced law of consecration, not in Ohio or Missouri, but in Brigham City, Utah, taught that consecration was not confined to any particular locality, but that in the Revelation, he's talking about section 51, it was told to the bishop that this should be an example unto him in organizing all churches, so that wherever Edward Partridge should find a church, he should have the privilege of organizing them according to the United Order of the Celestial Law or the Order of Enoch, all synonyms for the Law of Consecration. So section 51 is another milestone in consecration where it kind of gives the instructions in how a specific location. Remember, the pillars of consecration are sacrifice, their honesty, and their everybody giving what they have to try and bless and help others. All right, let's turn to section 52. And section 52 is fulfillment of a commandment given to Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants, section 44, verses 1 through 2, where the Lord told him to gather together all the priesthood, the Lord said, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. That's section 44, verse 2, to gather together. The elders of the church eventually meet together in a schoolhouse near the home of Isaac Morley. The Morley farm is just outside of Kirtland, Ohio, and the minutes from this conference identify 62 participants, including 43 elders, 9 priests, and 10 teachers. So during this conference, several unusual spiritual experiences take place, and section 52 is received right near the end of the conference. So here's a couple things that happen. The church historian, John Whitmer, wrote that during the conference, the Spirit of the Lord fell upon Joseph in an unusual manner. Joseph prophesied that John the Revelator was then among the ten tribes of Israel who had been led away to prepare them for their return and for their long dispersion to again possess the land of their fathers. And he prophesied many more things. Uh, other people had the Spirit fall upon them. Lyman White, for instance, prophesied concerning the coming of Christ and that he will appear in his brightness. Uh, Lyman White also prophesied that some, he said, of my brethren shall suffer martyrdom for the sake of the religion of Jesus Christ and seal the testimony with their blood. There were also some unusual demonic manifestations during the conference. For instance, John Whitmer, the church historian, recorded, while the Lord poured out his spirit upon his servants, the devil took occasion to make known his power. He bound Harvey Whitlock and John Murdoch so that they could not speak and others were affected. But the Lord showed to Joseph the seer the design of this thing, and he commanded the devil in the name of Christ, and he departed to our joy and comfort. John Coral remembered some curious things took place. The same visionary marvelous spirit spoken of before got hold of some of the elders. It threw one from a seat to the floor. It bound another so that for some time he could not use his limbs nor speak. And some of their curious effects were experienced, but by a mighty exertion in the name of the Lord, it was exposed and shown to be from an evil source. Now, Joseph Smith marks this conference uh, in a special way. He says, for the first time, uh, in his history, I conferred the high priesthood upon several of the elders. And it seems clear that at this conference was the first time that the office of high priest was first initiated. In the early church, it was an uncommon for them to use the phrase Melchizedek priesthood and erotic priesthood. They would usually use the terms the high priesthood or the Melchizedek priesthood and the lower priesthood, which was the erotic priesthood. But at this conference, um, they, for the first time, bestowed the office of high priest upon several people. For instance, Pilate P. Pratt, who was present at the meeting, explained that several were selected by revelation through President Joseph Smith and ordained to the high priesthood after the order of the Son of God, which is after the order of Melchizedek. 
This was the first occasion in which this priesthood had been revealed and was conferred upon the elders in this dispensation, although the office of an elder is the same in a certain degree, but not in its fullness. On this occasion, I was ordained to this holy ordinance and calling by President Smith. So it's not to say that the high priesthood or Melchizedek priesthood hadn't been given. Parley is basically saying the office of high priest had not been given. Now, Joseph Smith, throughout the rest of 1831, is going to speak at length about the high priesthood and all of its powers and rights. At a conference in October 1831, he said that the order of the high priesthood is to have power given to seal up the saints unto eternal life. Now, section 52 is received on the last day of this June conference held on the Morley Farm. Joseph Smith said it was received by heavenly vision. And you'll note some significant things that happen in this uh, commandment. For instance, let's go to verses 1 and 2. This is section 52. The Lord says, Thus saith the Lord unto the elders whom he hath called, and chosen in these last days by the voice of his Spirit, saying, I, the Lord, will make known unto you what I will that ye shall do from this time until the next conference, which shall be held in Missouri, upon the land which I will consecrate unto my people, who are a remnant of Jacob, according to the heirs of the covenant. So this is the first time in Joseph Smith's revelations that the word Missouri appears. An earlier revelation, section 28, tells them to travel to the borders by Lamanites or the boundary, the frontier of the United States. But now the Lord is telling them that the next conference that's held, and conferences back then weren't held semi-annually, they were held according to commandments of the Lord when the Lord needed them to, he says that the next conference is going to be held in Missouri. So you remember Oliver Cowdery and the three other missionaries that converted everyone in Kirtland traveled on to Missouri and are kind of waiting there right now. And the Lord tells Joseph Smith to travel to the frontier and that there he will let him know the location of this city of Zion. So verse three, the Lord tells them, let my servants, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon take their journey as soon as preparations can be made to leave their homes and journey to the land of Missouri. And verse five, inasmuch as they are faithful, it shall be made known unto them the land of your inheritance or the city where the new Jerusalem is going to be built, the location of Zion, this thing that they've been looking for. Now, you might know that a big chunk of section 52 is just them calling missionaries to go to this conference in Missouri. So in between this conference, which is happening in June and the next conference, which is going to happen in early August in Missouri, um, they're to travel from from one location to another, a journey of several hundred miles, I believe around 800 miles. Uh, the Lord in section 52 assigns 14 companionships. And this is kind of a listing of who's who in early church history. For instance, you have Isaac Morley, who owns the farm that they're on and is going to just stay with the church until his dying day, living consecration and giving his all. You also have Ezra Booth, who basically becomes the first anti-Mormon. Booth was a Methodist minister uh, he's mentioned in verses 5 and 6, uh, that was converted when he saw Joseph Smith heal uh, Elsa Johnson's arm. During his journey to Missouri, he's going to become disillusioned with Joseph Smith, and later on he's going to become a real problem for Joseph Smith. Several revelations received down the line are designed specifically to refute Ezra Booth and the criticisms he makes of the church. Uh, George A. Smith later commented on the reasons for Booth's apostasy, saying he'd formerly been a Methodist minister, commenced preaching gospel without perscript, and he did so until he found that it did not pay. <laughs> now, that might be a little unkind way to refer to Ezra Booth, but it's clear that he, he doesn't have a good experience on the journey to Zion and becomes the thorn in the prophet's side. Now, other people, you can see here John Murdoch, one of the great 
faithful servants of this dispensation. Verse 8 mentions Hiram Smith. The Lord tells them to go two by two and let them preach the way in every congregation. This is verse 10, baptizing by water and laying out of hands by the water side. Now, John Murdoch and uh, Hiram Smith have a tough time getting to Missouri. John Murdoch is very, very sick. And he lost his wife just a few months before. You remember John's wife, Julia Murdoch, dies when she's giving birth with twins. And John offers, asks Joseph and Emma Smith to adopt the twins because Emma had just given birth to twins and they had passed away. John uh, travels to Missouri, but he struggles. Uh, later on in his reminiscences, he said, I, I got really sick. I was overcome. Two or three days was lost time to me. I was so sick I could not pray vocally, yet my belief was so firm it could not be moved. I believe I did not die because my work was not yet done. He's able to get a blessing from Parley P. Pratt and from others, and he makes it to Missouri. Unfortunately, when he gets back, he also finds out that one of his uh, children, one of the Murdoch twins, um, the one named Joseph Murdoch Smith, has died because of, uh, in part because of a mob action that takes place at the John Johnson farm. John Murdoch still goes on to be the first missionary to Australia and a faithful patriarch in the church. Now, continuing down to verse 12, Lyman White is called and warned here. The Lord tells him that Satan desires to sift him as chaff, that if he's faithful, he'll be made a ruler over all things. And then the Lord says, verse 14, I will give unto you a pattern in all things that ye may not be deceived. Satan is abroad in land, and he go forth deceiving the nations. So the Lord says, here's the pattern to not be deceived by Satan. Recognize that Satan is real, that he's out there deceiving people. Wherefore, verse 15, he that prayeth whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted of me if he obeyeth mine ordinances. He that speaketh whose spirit is contrite, whose language is meek and edifieth, the same is of God if he obey my ordinances. And again, he that trembleth under my power shall be made strong and shall bring forth fruits of praise and wisdom according to the revelations and truths which i've given unto you so what's the secret to avoiding being tempted by satan recognize that he's there be contrite uh pray contritely speak contritely and keep the ordinances or commandments of god and you're less likely to be affected or hurt by him all right jump down to verse 22 and you see here the name thomas b marsh who's one of the first apostles in fact the first president of the quorum of the 12 apostles Columnist dispensation. There's Ezra Thayer, who we're going to deal with a little bit later on. Edward Partridge, um, Martin Harris, David Whitmer, Harvey Whitlock, Parley P. Pratt, and Orson Pratt. This is verse 26. Levi Hancock, Zebedee Coltrane. Again, this is a who's who in early church history. Um, down to verse 32. Newell Knight, verse 37. Simon's writer. You remember him. He's the guy who, um, according to popular myth, <laughs> um, leaves the church because his name is misspelled on his ordination certificate. Now, it's more complicated than that. Simon's writer leaves the church because he has issues with the law of consecration. But this rumor surfaces near the end of his life. In fact, one, a minister that knew him at his funeral said that Simon's was so upset uh, over his name being misspelled on his ordination certificate. Surprisingly, last week I was in Ohio. I went to um, the cemetery in Hiram, Ohio, where Simon's writer is buried and his name, if it's spelled correctly on his gravestone, is still spelled incorrectly here in the Doctrine and Covenants. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. And on his headstone, if you ever want to look this up, they also spelled another word wrong. It was supposed to say member of Disciples Church and they spelled disciples wrong too. So it's hard to spell stuff right. And I hope that's not why Simon's writer left the church. If he did, we're sorry. 
There's actually evidence that Simon's writer didn't spell his name in a uniform way. We have it spelled with an I and a Y in his first name, though consistently in his last name it's a Y, and we did get that right in this edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. So we're doing the best we can. Now, um, the Lord gives the missionaries instructions. For instance, the ones left behind that aren't going to Zion uh, are instructed to, verse 39, watch over the churches, declare the word in the regions roundabout, labor with their own hands that there be no idolatry or wickedness practice, and remember the poor and the needy and the sick and afflicted, and they do these things. So this starts this big adventure that's going to encompass the next few sections. Basically, everything up to section 56 is them getting ready to go to Zion, and then section 57, where we end the Come Follow Me block today, is the revelation received when they get to Missouri and are told where the city will be. So let's keep going. In section 53, a revelation is given to a man named Algernon Sidney Gilbert. Now he almost goes, always goes by Sidney Gilbert, so we'll leave the Algernon aside. But Sidney Gilbert is a very well-known shopkeeper in Kirtland. Uh, you remember a lot of the church activity in Kirtland centers around the store of Newell K. Whitney. And Newell K. Whitney is the business partner of Algernon Sidney Gilbert. In this revelation, Sidney Gilbert was called to travel to Missouri with the elders, and the Lord promises a couple blessings. For instance, the Lord says, verse 1, Sidney Gilbert, I've heard your prayers, and you have called upon me that it should be made known unto you of the Lord your God concerning your calling and election in the church, which I, the Lord God, have raised up in the last days. This is the first time in the Doctrine and Covenants the words calling and election are given. This probably doesn't refer to his eternal life, but his calling in the church and what the Lord's asking him to do. The Lord asks him to be an agent, this is verse 4, unto the church in the place here appointed by the bishop and receive the ordinances of the gospel. So Sidney is called to travel to uh, Missouri when he gets there. In section 57, verses 8 and 10, he's commanded to set up a store. Sidney um, Gilbert is one of those names that's kind of fallen by the wayside because he dies relatively young. He gives his all. He sets up a store in Missouri only to have it completely destroyed in 1833 when the church is persecuted. Sidney loses everything and is forcibly uh, evicted from his home in Jackson County. He's there when Joseph Smith and the relief effort, known as Zion's Camp, or the Camp of Israel, arrives. And unfortunately, Sidney is one of the casualties of the cholera outbreak uh, that happens after the saints arrive there. Now, another great connection to Sidney Gilbert is not just him, but his family, including his niece, who becomes one of the most famous women in church history. Her name is Mary Elizabeth Rollins. She later marries a guy named Adam Leitner and Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner. Mary uh, tells this great story later on that when she first heard of the Book of Mormon, she travels to the home of Isaac Morley, who had a copy of the book. When Isaac uh, saw her interest in it, he agreed to loan her the book, and she ran home telling her uncle, oh, uncle, I've got the Golden Bible. She later on says she stayed up that late, late that night studying the book with her family. And she woke up the next day to study the book. She learned the first paragraph of the Book of Mormon by heart. When she brought the book back to Brother Morley, he told her, you're early. I guess she did not read very much of it. Then Mary opened it up and showed him how far she had read and repeated an outline of the history of Nephi. Now, old Isaac Morley looks at her in surprise and says, child, take this back and finish it. I can wait. And a few days later, the prophet Joseph Smith actually comes to Sidney Gilbert's home where Mary is living and sees the book and says, I gave that book to Brother Morley. Then Sidney Gilbert explains to Joseph how Mary had obtained it, and Joseph sent for Mary personally. Mary later said, he came and put his hands on my head and gave me a great blessing, the first I've ever received, and made me a present of the book 
and said he would give Brother Morley another. Now, just keep in mind that Mary moves with her uncle to Missouri, and Mary and her sister Caroline are two of the people that run into the printing press while it's being burned down by the mob and grab as many copies of the Revelations as they can and run out and hide. She saves some of the early Revelations that are then published later in the Book of Commandments and the Doctrine and Covenants. So uh, Sidney Gilbert is wonderful on his own. He also brings this wonderful family into the church, some of whom play very, very important roles in later events. All right, let's move on to section 54 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 54 is kind of the sequel to section 51, where the Colesville Saints were commanded to move to Thompson, Ohio, and there live on land that was owned or leased by Lehman Copley. You remember Brother Copley had a a really hard time uh, getting the Shakers back in section 49 to listen to anything that he has to say. And at this point, he really starts to struggle. He kind of starts to go back and forth between the Shakers and the Latter-day Saints. And he'll do that for the next couple years, ultimately staying behind in Ohio, not really affiliating with either of them. Um, There's a problem. Uh, Ashbel Kitchell, that Shaker that opposes the elders when they come to the Shaker colony in Shaker Heights, shows up on, um, on Copley's land and gets involved in a shouting match with Joe, with Noel Knight, the leader of the Colesville branch and Joseph Knight, uh, who is, this venerable old leader from Colesville. After it's done, uh, Copley basically withdraws his offer for them to live on his land. Joseph Knight later said bitterly, we had to leave Copley's farm and pay $60 damage for fitting up his houses and planting his ground. Newell Knight would later recall, we commence work in good faith, thinking to obtain a living by the sweat of the brow. We had not lingered long before the above-named Copley broke his engagement, which he'd made with us. And at this time I went to Kirtland to see Brother Joseph. So the Colesville Saints are getting evicted from their land because Lehman Copley is withdrawing from the law of consecration. And the Colesville Saints are wondering what to do. So the Lord here uh, speaks to Newell Knight and says, basically, uh, if your brethren desire, this is verse three, to escape their enemies, let them repent of their sins and become truly humble and penitent before me as the covenant which they've made unto me has been broken. And the Lord is not happy with Lehman Copley for and leaving this agreement. He says, verse 5, Woe to him by whom this offense cometh, for it had been better for him that he had been drowned in the depths of the sea. But blessed are they who keep the covenant and have obtained the commandment, for they shall obtain mercy. So this is one of the first real tests of the law of consecration. What do you do if someone decides to withdraw from it? The Lord decides to resolve the issues peacefully in verse 8. He tells the Colesville branch to keep going on to Missouri. So they've already traveled several hundred miles to get to Thompson, Ohio. Now they're going to travel several hundred more miles to get to Missouri and there be, uh, there be put in place. But Newell Knight is told to stand fast in his office and that he is supposed to remain as the leader of the Colesville branch. He didn't do anything wrong. Uh, he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And this hardship comes because Lehman Copley basically makes a bad decision. So the Lord tells them, verse 10, be patient in tribulation until I come. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. And they who have sought after me shall find rest of their souls. Even so, amen. Now, as we mentioned, this is a big trial. They've traveled about 350 miles to get to Kirtland. It's about 800 more miles before they get to Missouri. In fact, Newell Knight was so worried about his mother, Polly, he didn't know if she was going to survive such a journey. He later writes, 
My mother's health was very poor and had been for a considerable length of time, yet he could not convince her to stop traveling. He said this, her only great desire was to set feet upon the land of Zion and have her body interred in that land. And Newell actually purchases some lumber before their departure, just in case he has to make a coffin for her along the way. Now she does make it to Zion and We'll talk about that when we get to section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is in the next block. So the Knight family begins to make preparations and they leave. And even though this is somewhat a tough story for them, they've already sacrificed everything uh, in Colesville to come to Ohio. They do become, they do gain the distinction of being the first branch of the church to travel to the land of Zion. In fact, Newell Knight later on takes this as a badge of honor. He says, this was the first branch of the church which had emigrated to the land of Zion. I found it acquired all the wisdom that I had to lead this company through so long a journey in the midst of enemies. So great were the mercies and blessings of God that not one of us were harmed and we made our journey in safety. Now let's keep going to section 55. Again, lots of short little sections in this block. And there we need another one of the really, really distinctive figures of the early restoration. This is William Wines Phelps or W.W. W. Phelps, better known uh, as the author of The Spirit of God, uh, Adam on Diamond, Now Let Us Rejoice, If You Could Hide a Kolob. He's one of the most prodigious writers and especially hymn creators in the early church. Uh, Phelps is an interesting guy because he he purchases several copies of the Book of Mormon and stays up all night studying them, but he doesn't convert right away. He becomes convinced that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God and that it, it's important, but he's really hesitant to join the church. In fact, he later writes, My heart was there from the time I became acquainted with the Book of Mormon, and my hope steadfast like an anchor, and my faith increased like the grass after a refreshing shower. But the reason why he puts off joining the church is because he was subject to persecution because he promoted the Book of Mormon. Um, Phelps is a, an influential newspaper, newspaper editor. He He edits this newspaper called the Ontario phoenix and he often would talk about and praise the book of mormon but it brought persecution upon him uh, for instance he was arrested uh, because he, he he had borrowed some money on credit to run the newspaper which was fairly common and when he got to the jail he was informed by the local leaders that the real reason he was arrested was to quote keep him from joining the mormons he was in jail for 30 days, and while he's there, he writes this outraged letter to the local newspapers where he said, is this religion? Is it liberty to jail someone who's investigating to find the truth? Is this humanity? And while he's in jail, that's the thing that tips the scales for him. He resigns his editorship of the Ontario Phoenix and decides he's going to leave with his family to join the church in Ohio. In fact, he writes one last message to the readers of his newspaper where he said, quote, we live in an eventful day. According to the psalmist, truth springs out of the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven and as twin angels, they will sweep through the world like a mighty torrent till mankind untrammeled by secret bondage sings as the sons of glory. We are one peace on earth. Virtue endures forever. So William and Sally leave their home uh, in New York and travel to Kirtland and arrive on June 14th, 1831, the day this revelation is received. And uh, William just basically goes straight to Joseph Smith and says, I need a revelation. This is it, section 55 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So you'll note a couple things here. Verse 1, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant William, yea, even the Lord of the whole earth, thou art called and chosen. And after thou hast been baptized with water, 
which if you do with the nice single my glory, you shall have a remission of your sins and a reception of the Holy Spirit by laying out of hands. So William has not been baptized when this revelation is given. And the Lord tells him, first off, get baptized. So William goes and gets baptized and is immediately ordained an elder, which was pretty rare in the early church. Uh, William uh, is also one of the most prolific writers. He writes about the Book of Mormon and how it helped him. Uh, later on, he says, whenever I have meditated upon the Book of Mormon and looked ahead at the glory which will be brought to pass by that and the servants of God, I have been filled with hope, filled with light, filled with joy, and filled with satisfaction. What a wonderful volume. What a glorious treasure. By that book, I learned the right way to God. By that book, I received a fullness of the everlasting gospel. By that book, I found a new covenant. Now, the Lord knows what William's potential is as well. And so he commands him to join this mission to Zion, basically. William wasn't around when the conference was held where section 52 was given, but the Lord recruits him. In fact, the Lord says specifically in verse 4, You shall assist my servant Oliver Cowdery to do the work of printing and selecting and writing books for schools in this church that little children also may receive instruction as is pleasing unto me. So we, we're starting to get hints of what the city of Zion is going to be like. It's going to be a place of education. The Lord is sending this incredibly gifted writer and author. And this is really the first time in this dispensation a commandment is given concerning education. That it's going to be important for everybody, including little children, to receive instruction and gain and grow in knowledge. So obedient to the commandment, uh, William jumps on board and starts on his way to Missouri. Now in section 56, we come back to an earlier controversy that I mentioned. In section 52, Ezra Thayer is called to go on a mission specifically with Thomas B. Marsh as his companion. And um, in section 56, a situation comes up where basically Ezra is not able to go. Thomas B. Marsh later on writes, In June 1831, I received an appointment to go to Missouri with Ezra Thayer and preach by the way. In consequence of Ezra Thayer delaying so long, I went to Joseph, who received the word of the Lord, and appointed Selah J. Griffin, who I journeyed to Missouri by preaching the way. We don't know exactly what went on uh, with Ezra Thayer, but it seems like um, it's, it's financial in concern because the Lord in this revelation really takes Ezra Thayer to task for being greedy. It, it starts out with a pretty stern rebuke. The Lord says, Hearken, O you people who profess my name, saith the Lord your God, for behold, mine anger is kindled against the rebellious, and they shall know mine arm and mine indignation in the day of visitation and of wrath upon the nations. He that will not take up his cross and follow me and keep my commandments the same shall not be saved. That's verses 1 and 2. Now, there was an earlier um, uh, revelation given to Ezra Thayer, that basically uh, spoke about his need to um, give his finances to the church, to to not hoard his money, basically, and to help take care of, among other things, Newell Knight and the Colesville Saints. Um, the Revelation, which, by the way, isn't in the Doctrine and Covenants, but you can find it the Joseph Smith Papers. It's titled Revelation, 15th May, 1831. Joseph Smith Papers said specifically, What shall the brethren do with their money? Go forth and seek diligently among the brethren and obtain lands and save the money that shall be consecrated to purchase lands for in the West for an everlasting inheritance. Now, part of the reason why we think this is financial is not just that revelation, but in section 56, the Lord specifically speaks pretty directly about people that hoard their resources 
and won't use it to bless or help others. Go to verse 16. Woe unto you rich men who will not give your substance to the poor. For your riches will canker your souls, and this shall be your lamentation in the day of visitation, and of judgment, and of indignation. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and my soul is not saved. Then the Lord uh, also rebukes poor men. (laughs) Verse 17, Woe unto you poor men whose hearts are not broken, and whose spirits are not contrite, and whose bellies are not satisfied, and whose hands are not stayed from laying hold upon others' men's good, whose eyes are full of greediness, and who will not labor with your hand. So the Lord is equal opportunity. It's not necessarily money that makes a person righteous or unrighteous. The Lord rebukes both the rich and the poor here. It's the condition of a person's heart. Uh, Like you said, sometimes we misquote the New Testament and say that money is the root of all evil. What the New Testament actually says, Paul says, is that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is neither good nor evil. Money is what a person does with it. In fact, take a look in verse 18. The Lord says, Blessed are the poor who are pure in heart, whose hearts are broken and whose spirits are contrite, for they shall see the kingdom of God in power and great glory unto their deliverance, for the fatness of the earth shall be theirs. So it's less about the idea that you have money or don't have money, and more about the condition of your heart. If you have money, are you using it to try and bless the other people around you, or are you just selfishly hoarding it? If you don't have money, are you angry, upset? Are you are you trying to take advantage? Are you meek and lowly in heart and appreciate the, the goodness of the blessings that you do have and the things the Lord has done for you? You might remember in the New Testament, there's a really well-known story about a rich young ruler who approaches Jesus Christ and tells him that he's kept all the commandments of God. Uh, the Savior's response, which is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 22 to 27, says this, the, the Lord turns to the rich young ruler and says, Thou lackest one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When he had heard this, the rich young ruler, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they have riches that enter into the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when they heard it, who then can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now, just a couple of things. Joseph Smith, he changes when he, when he translates this verse just a little bit. And it says, it's impossible for them who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. But he who forsaketh the things of this world, it is possible with God that he should enter in. So Joseph Smith is, is commanded to restore the text, which basically says, it's not impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It's impossible for a person who only trusts in riches, who won't be willing to give them up when they leave this life to go into the kingdom of God. All right, one last stop on our journey here, and that's section 57. Section 57 is received after this missionary journey that's commanded in section 52 takes place. Joseph and all the elders, at varying speeds, uh, travel until they're on the boundaries of the United States in the West, Joseph Smith said, we looked into the vast wilderness and they pondered on the plight of the American Indians. Joseph Smith even writes, after viewing the country, seeking diligently at the hand of God, he manifested unto me and designated to me and others the very spot which he designed to commence the work of gathering, the upbuilding of a holy city, which should be called Zion. Zion, because it's a place of righteousness and all who build thereon are to worship the true and living God. Now this revelation, section 57, is received a few days after Joseph Smith makes it to Missouri and is based on two questions that Joseph Smith asks. Remember, the Doctrine and Covenants is a book of questions and answers. The question section 57 is designed to 
answer is when will the wilderness blossom as the rose meaning the frontier they're they're living in a pretty rough place and where will thy temple stand upon which all nations shall come in the last days well the answer to the second question is given almost immediately Um, the lord says verse two this is the land of promise and the place for the city of zion independence missouri and verse three the lord and thus saith the lord your god if ye receive wisdom here's wisdom the place which is now called independence is the center place and a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. So Joseph Smith is finally, uh, and this is something that's been going back for several years from the translation of the Book of Mormon, able to identify the location of the city of Zion. And the Lord even specifically says, this is where the temple is going to be built. Now, we're going to talk in, in future sections about the temple and what the Lord revealed about that. Uh, section 84 and a couple other revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants discuss the temple that is still going to be built in Zion. But remember, Jackson County and in Independence is not the end of Zion, it's the beginning. It's the starting place. Brigham Young later on would say, Zion will extend eventually over all this earth. There will be no nook nor corner of the earth but what will be in Zion? It will all be Zion. We're going to gather as many as we can, bless them, give them their endowments, have them preach the truth and lay the principles of eternal life. But the rest of section 57 deals specifically with the, the nitty gritty. Sidney Gilbert in verse six is assigned to build a store and be an agent of the church. Edward Partridge, who has been the bishop in the church in Kirtland, is now assigned to be the bishop in the church in Zion. And at this point, the, the Lord starts to command the saints to pour into Zion. Verse 8, Sidney Gilbert is commanded to build a store. Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Phelps, this is verses 11 through 13, are commanded to set up a printing office and begin to set up operations for the church. And the Colesville branch, which sections 58 and 59 are going to deal with, are also going to arrive here and make this their home for the next two years until persecutions force them to leave. In fact, there's this really, really wonderful moment uh, that Joseph records while he's in Missouri. And by the way, some of the other people that travel with him start to notice this is rough country, not just rough country. It's beautiful and it's still beautiful to this day. But the settlers that lived on the frontier were generally the rougher people of society. Nevertheless, Joseph Smith sees things with an eye of faith. He holds uh, a meeting, the first meeting held in Zion, and invites a congregation. And later on, uh, B.H. Roberts notes that this congregation includes American Indians African-Americans and, quote, all classes and conditions of people from the surrounding counties, Universalists, Atheists, Deists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, both priests and people, a motley crowd, truly. Now, that might signal some trouble for the church later on because the settlers in Missouri don't take kindly to these religious people from the northern United States. Remember, Missouri is technically the South and a slave state, and that's going to set up conflicts later on. Nevertheless, when Joseph Smith gets to Independence, Missouri, he doesn't see a frontier town, and he doesn't see an unruly group of people. He sees the city of Zion. Now, I want to emphasize with you that almost 200 years removed from these events, we've yet to build the city of Zion, and yet there's a little Zion everywhere around us. That prophecy that Zion will fill every nook and cranny of the earth has really started to come to pass. There are hundreds of temples being built and in process, and every one of those is a little bit of the city of Zion. And while the early saints may have thought that they build the city of Zion first and then fill the earth, it seems like the Lord's plan all along was to fill the earth and near the time of the second coming for us to build the city of Zion. We build the city of Zion or any city right now when we build it in our hearts. 
when we become the kind of people that when the Lord opens the doors and prepares the way, and he will open the doors and prepare the way for us to build an independence, Missouri, we have to be the kind of people that will be worthy to live within there. We have to be the kind of people that are willing to do the sort of things that Joseph Smith and the early saints did, like travel 800 miles based on commandment to do the things that the Lord would ask us to do. But it's my testimony to you that we will build the city of Zion and that the city of Zion starts not in Independence, Missouri, but in the hearts of every faithful Latter-day Saint out there who lives the gospel, lives the law of consecration, and is kind and Christ-like to the people around them. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I've been Casey Paul Griffiths, and we've been studying Doctrine and Covenants section 51 to 57. I hope you have a great week and a blessed Sabbath, if that's when you're listening to this, and I will see you next time.